Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. having a subject who is like for instance alfred hitchcock you know he starts making films and then your book a book if you wrote a book about alfred hitchcock it would then be you know and then he made psycho and then he made birds and then he made and it would just be one one film after another so someone like wilder and 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 malik they have lives that are really dense and interesting as well as making films right right well i think that's really important in today's world especially i tell this to students all the time because uh, i teach at san francisco state university i teach cinema and they complain about taking ge classes general education things like history sociology literature and i tell them those are the most important classes you're going to take as a filmmaker because what else are you going to make movies about and i once was at usc with orson wells we were shooting a scene for other side of the wind that didn't get into the film but he was doing a scene where he was playing the old director and he was being interviewed by students. And some guy said to him, um, what, what do you think uh, should, should be taught at film schools? And Wells said, I wouldn't show any films. And this guy seemed really shocked. And Wells said, um, you've all seen too many films, you know, um, just go out and make films. And uh, the guy said, well, what would you teach? And Wells spread his arms really wide. And he said, I would teach the history of the world. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're missing that with a lot of the young filmmakers. All they know is old movies and TV shows or, or current movies and TV shows. And, you know, they're kind of imitating other filmmakers. But um, the filmmakers, the great filmmakers of, of the uh, earlier period, had lives before they got into films you know they were you know race car drivers aviators leo mccary was a lawyer um people were um in the military and you know you name it buster keaton was an acrobat and vaudevillian and um frank capra had all kinds of different jobs and uh billy wilder was a journalist and i'm 
being a journalist myself, I, I, I thought, well, let's spend a lot of time digging into his journalism. And so um, he worked in Vienna and Berlin. And um, <clears throat> there are two books out in German of his, his um, journalism, one the Viennese journalism and the other the Berlin. And then there was a, a book in English that kind of picked the highlights of both. But there are a lot of things in, in the German books that, that weren't published in the, the English book. But anyway, it was really interesting to see his development as a writer uh, and also the things he he later made movies about. You know, there, there are echoes of uh, Sunset Boulevard and um, Some Like It Hot. I mean, for example, Some Like It Hot, there was a, um, a group of English girl dancers called the Tiller Girls who he had tremendous kind of sexual fascination with and they were kind of syncopated dancers and they came to Berlin on the train just like the girls band does in Some Like It Hot and uh, they had a strict um, band leader just like the Sweet Sue in Some Like It Hot and Billy Wilder wrote these kind of very excited, lubricious kind of articles about the Tiller girls, and he fell in love with one of them, and he wrote a poem about her that was published, and and you could see the connections. And um, he, uh, you know, he wasn't a great journalist, but the the thing he wrote that was the best and would make a good movie is rather well known. It's um, it's called Waiter, Bring Me a Dancer, <clears throat> and he was what they called an Eintanzer, which means tea dancer, and in those days. At the big hotels in Berlin, they had dances in the evening where ladies, young or old, would come and dance with handsome young guys for tips. And um, so Wilder wrote a four-part series, which is just fascinating. Uh, it's kind of like, it would make a great movie, just like Cabaret, kind of, you know. And it's all about the kind of hypocrisies involved in being suave and charming and and the humiliations and uh, the kind of feminization of the dancer too. And um, speaking of which, Wilder wrote a, a girl's advice column, female advice column under a girl's name in, in Berlin too. That's another <laughs> echo or echo is not the right word, but precursor of some like it hot. Absolutely. And reading those early chapters of the book, what's, a, what's um, you know, sometimes there, there's a, a, a risk with a biography of someone who, who, as we've just said, has a life prior to the, to the, um, I remember a biography of Raymond Chandler, which quoted his phrase, you know, who cares when, when the writer got his first bicycle. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there is a sort of t maybe a, a temptation at times to think, Oh, I'll just skip to when they start being the person I want them to be. But right. um but with these chapters, what's really interesting is you how you um you you put in oh this is where this could have come from this could have been an inspiration for this so the films are already there right from the beginning. Yeah, Leonie Dell, uh, the great biographer of Henry James, wrote a wonderful book called Writing Lives, which I, I read every time I write a biography. And uh, one point he made was biographers should be free in cr chronology. It shouldn't, and, and that kind of picks up on what you were saying, and I want to comment on that, that it doesn't have to be in this and this and this and this in, in strict chronological order, because he said, um, you know, lives have connections, and so something that happened to Billy Wilder when he was 14 or whatever might appear in a film much later or have some uh, influence on him later, and certainly there are many things in his life, for example, when he 
found out his father had a, an adulterous relationship and he had a, another child that uh, his mother didn't know about and Billy kept it a secret and then he had this kind of he held this over his father in a sense and I mean that's these kind of things really had a lot of uh, connection with Wilder's later life and he said for example his father <clears throat> ran a string of hotels and um, he said I learned most of what I knew about life hanging around one of the hotels and he said probably you know a lot of the worst things about life you learn in a hotel you know uh, playing pool and drinking and hanging out with all kinds of itinerant people and you know but that's why he was such a sophisticated guy at a very early age and a wise guy you know in, in both senses of the word and uh <clears throat> that served him well in life because he had to grow up quickly and he became a journalist at a very early age and and then he went to Berlin and had to scramble for a living and um, he became a screenwriter but then Nazism came and he had to flee the country and he was in exile several times over and and, and I also deal with the Holocaust and its effect on his family and uh, that was a profound part of his life that he didn't talk about very much but that um, it devastated him <clears throat> excuse me his mother and his stepfather and his grandmother were killed in the Holocaust and uh, he never knew apparently that his mother died at Plaschow, the camp in if people have seen Schindler's List that's the camp run by Amon Gerth uh, the Ray Fiennes character psychopathic Nazi his mother was in Krakow and she she was taken to that camp and died he thought she died in Auschwitz he never knew for sure but mm -hmm. um uh, he he tried. He went to Vienna in 1935, and this had a big effect on his whole life. Um, he knew, being a journalist and sophisticated political guy, that um, Austria was not a safe place for his parents, for, for his mother and stepfather to live. And he, he he scraped together some money in Hollywood, and he went to Vienna and tried to talk them into coming to America, and they wouldn't leave because they were number one they were too they're old and, and two uh, like a lot of jews in europe uh, they didn't believe that it would get as bad as it did but billy kind of foresaw that and um <clears throat> he said that uh, vienna was much more anti-semitic than berlin which is interesting and kind of counterintuitive and so he really knew these things and, and uh, but he felt terribly guilty that he couldn't uh, rescue his his mother and stepfather and uh, grandmother and that kind of plays out in his films. He wanted to end his career with uh, Schindler's List, actually. And Spielberg, who I wrote a biography of, uh, was hesitating for about 10 years to make that film because he realized what a difficult challenge it was and, and uh, what a uh, profound uh, experience it would be for him. And he finally did it. <clears throat> but in, in the period in between, Wilder had some talks with Spielberg and he thought Spielberg was never going to make it so he called him and said um, you know I'd like to direct this film and you could produce it or vice versa Wilder was getting pretty old at the time and he probably would have been too old to make a film that demanding at the time but Spielberg had to tell him the film was in pre-production going into shooting in a, a very few months and he said it was the most difficult phone call he ever had to to make but he said Wilder was a real gentleman about it and uh, <clears throat> when he saw the film he he thought it was the greatest film he'd ever seen and he wrote a 
he wrote a review of it for a Bavarian newspaper, which is interesting um, because Bavaria was where the Nazis started, you know, where Hitler came from. And um, he wanted to counter Holocaust denial for one thing. And he talked about how vivid the film was. And he, he, he said, um, he, he concluded by writing, for people who deny the Holocaust, I just have one question, where is my mother? Mm. You know, very mm. powerful ending. Um, and when I did the Spielberg book, I, I wanted to interview Holocaust survivors about the film and ask them what they thought. And I interviewed 35 of them, and uh, <clears throat> they all told me basically the same couple things. One was that the film was so vivid that it was just like being back there, which was, you know, a great compliment to Spielberg's artistry. And But they also said Ray Fiennes was too handsome to play the part because the real Eamon Griffith was a loathsome-looking fellow, and Spielberg, I think, wanted him to be more you know, uh, normal looking so people wouldn't just see him as a caricature. Um, but the other thing they said was it wasn't as violent as the real events. And Spielberg admitted that, that, you know, th there were things that were so horrifying that if you showed them, people would run out of the theater. And I heard some stories from these people that, you know, I won't even, there's one story I won't even tell people because it would ruin their entire year to hear the mm -hmm. story, you know. But anyway, back to Billy Wilder, he was... Um, Oh, the point you made about chronology, it's very interesting. When I was writing this book, which took about 10 years off and on, well, I took a long break in between. I was writing a book on Lubitsch. I first had the, what I thought was a bright idea, write a book on Lubitsch and Wilder together because Wilder was a protege of Lubitsch. And uh, he, had, he had the famous sign on his wall, how would Lubitsch do it? Mm -hmm. So I called my book, how did Lubitsch do it? But after about a year writing about the two of them, I realized, number one, they were as different as they're similar. And number two, the book would be inordinately long because they both had huge careers. So I spun off the Wilder part and I went back to it later. But um, in the early parts of the book, I, I, I kept to the regular chronology, but I did occasionally look forward, as I said, to other things that he would do. But when I got to the films he directed, I, I thought about it, and I, I, I must say I'm kind of tired of the whole approach of uh, writing about films chronologically. I mean, I've done that myself, and most other film book writers do that. <clears throat> they, um, you know, it's a critical study, not a biography. If it were a biography, right. you, you kind of need to be more chronological. But when I got to the films he, he directed in Hollywood in 1942 onward, he had directed a film in France in 1934, and I, I had written about that. But I, I began thinking, I put a lot of thought into it, and I thought, well, I don't want to do this chronologically. I want to do it thematically. And so I wrote about, you know, the um, different ideas and themes and motifs and stories and connections. And it took a lot of thinking and outlining, but it, it sort of fell into place because there was a certain logic to it. And I think it reads well, and I, I really enjoyed doing it that way. And um, it's a kind of unorthodox, experimental way to write a critical study, but I enjoyed it. Absolutely, and I mean, when he's uh, when he goes from Berlin and he decides, I've, I, 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 I'm not going to survive if I stay here. Um, I have to get out. 
um, I mean, there's this horrible scene where he, he Billy Wilder's witnesses um, uh, an old man being beaten to death on the streets and nobody, yeah. nobody doing anything. Um, he, and also sort of, he, he includes himself in that nobody doing anything. He, he includes yeah. his own, his own inability to intervene without, you know, potentially putting himself in a great deal of danger. Um, he is one of quite, quite a few, uh, well, uh, uh, one of uh, uh, of a um, a whole number of refugees or or, or um, pe- people who are fleeing the the uh, and there's this brilliant scene that you write about how uh, he arrives in America and the sort of border some sort of official bureaucrat. Um, it's a great scene of tension where he's uh, sort of pacing up and down behind Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder doesn't know what's going to happen, and he finally stamps his uh, passport. And he asks him, "What do you do?" What? And he says, "I write films." He says, "Oh, well, write some good ones." As he gives him the passport and allows him into the country. Yeah, um, isn't that a wonderful story? Wow, I mean, it's so moving. And and uh, I, I, by the way, if people are interested, there's a film magazine called Bright Lights. It's an online film magazine that I love. Gary. Uh, 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 the, the guy who runs it is a terrific fellow who, who does it on his own. And um, he, um, I, I've been writing for them since the 70s. But anyway, I put my art- article on my section from the book on Hold Back the Dawn, which is a film mm-hmm. that not too many people know about. But it's it's Billy's most autobiographical film, but he didn't direct it, which is interesting. It's directed by Mitchell Lyson, who's a good director who's kind of neglected. But um, it's about a refugee in Mexico at the border, played by Charles Boyer, who is desperate to get into the U.S. And it was kind of based on Wilder's own experiences, as you mentioned, being in Mexico. He got a visa to come to America for six months to work for Columbia Pictures, and then he had to leave the country again. And so a lot of people were stuck in hotels in Mexico, and they could be stuck for years in that period because we had strict quotas on immigration. And Wilder um, had to go into this consul. He thought it was, he never remembered the guy's name. He thought it was the consul. He found out later it was an assistant consul. Um, and I found out the man's name was Willis Myers. And I think one reason why Mr. Myers was so benevolent toward him was he was an amateur magician. And I I think, you know, he was kind of a member of the family of show business. And he was, Mm. you know, he was kind of part of the the gang with Billy Wilder. And he he made his whole life and career possible. I mean, we probably, uh, I don't know what would have happened to Billy Wilder if this man hadn't been kind to him. And um, so in Bright Lights, if people want to read that section, I I put that in there and I found documents that I I didn't have in my book. Uh, One is Billy Wilder's application for citizenship uh, and for a visa. I have both of those in there, very interesting documents to look at. And then I found a picture of Willis Myers, very obscure fellow, but I found a little picture of him. But he gave tribute when he won the Thalberg Award in the 80s most of his speech was about this one sweet man in Tijuana, or not Tijuana, it was Mexicali, Mexico, mm. um, who, who made his whole career possible. Very, very poignant speech. 
Yeah, I've tried. I've tried. I've tried to make good films uh, ever yeah. since. You know? Yeah, to thank this dear man in uh, Mexicali. And, oh, I mentioned the, the editor of the magazine, Gary Morris. I should give him credit. Gary is a terrific guy. Who uh, I love the idea that one guy has a film magazine that he keeps going. It used to be a print magazine, and now it's an online publication. And it's really delightful because he's, he's very eclectic, and he's very good with writers. He kind of lets writers do their thing, and he's a very benevolent editor, too. So I'd like to publish with him whenever I can. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's a brilliant recommendation as well for anybody who wants to who's looking for some more quality online writing uh, on film. Um, so uh, when we get Wilder in America, he's of course um, he's he's there. There are lots of people around him who uh, he's to some degree worked with uh, already in Berlin uh, in his sort of nascent career. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also he kind of you, you point out that he's at a very low point in his career at this point. There's no you know he doesn't feel like he's in the right country even necessarily. He doesn't feel like he's clicking. Um, uh, uh, what what do you feel is the turning point for him where it sort of starts to go? It starts to go right. Well, the low point he said was when he came back from Vienna, feeling mm-hmm. terribly depressed about not being able to talk his mother into coming over. Um, he had been living in, um, he, he, he liked to say it was the ladies' bathroom at the Chateau Marmont Hotel. It was probably the little ante room before you get into the ladies' bathroom. And often in ladies' bathrooms, they have a little cot where ladies can lie down. And so he, he had had a room in, in the uh, hotel and they, they gave it up they said they were going to save it for him when he got back, but they didn't. So he had to he had to live in the anteroom of the ladies' bathroom. He said that was the lowest point of his life. Uh, but he soon rebounded. He was working very hard on scripts. And but the the turning point was 1936. The year after that, he um, he 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 was freelancing, selling a few scripts. And there was a guy named Manny Wolf at Paramount who was another benevolent fellow who deserves credit, um, he was the story editor at Paramount, and um, he um, he recognized Billy Wilder as an up-and-coming, talented, bright fellow, and um, he teamed him with Charles Brackett. Charles Brackett, who I write about a lot in the book, was one of Wilder's two big collaborators. Wilder almost always had a collaborator, even in Germany. Um, <clears throat> I think there were only three films that he ever worked on totally on his own. But in, in America, he felt he needed a, a, a collaborator who, who was very good with English, for one thing. And Brackett was a very literate man. He had been the drama editor of The New Yorker, and he was a member of the Algonquin Roundtable. He wrote novels, et cetera, urbane, sophisticated guy. But he was very different from Wilder. He was a um, conservative Republican blue blood from New York, and he was actually a bank president, family bank. And... Um, but he was hooked up with um, Wilder, and Wolf had had the sense to realize that Brackett, who was very suave and sophisticated and all that, needed a bit of a kind of a charge with some kind of livelier collaborator. Uh, Brackett's stuff on his own was a little, a little, uh, I don't know what the word is, um, a palette, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he was very elegant, but he needed a guy with a hard chart charging sense of narrative and 
and colorful characters, et cetera. And Wilder had that. But Wilder's English was not too great. He he learned English, he said, by listening to the radio, listening to sports on the radio and uh, pop music and things, and also dating as many American girls as he could and listening to them. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, that's, that's why he was dating the girls, absolutely. It was, yeah, it was yeah, that's, that's what he <laughs> Well, it kills two persons, one stone, right? Yeah, yeah, he, uh, yeah I've, I found an interview with somebody at the hotel who said, Every time I saw him, he was with a different girl, you know. Uh, yeah, um, that's funny. But anyway, so he and Brackett were teamed, and um, Ernst Lubitsch needed uh, writers. And um, and Manny Wolf, Lubitsch was at a turning point in his career, too, because the production code had come in in 1934 and, and was very strict. And Lubitsch uh, was really clever at getting around the censorship that existed before that, but the censorship became extremely severe. And so he took time off and he became head of production at Paramount, which didn't work out too well because he was not the kind of guy who could supervise other people very well. He was too autocratic. Um, but he um, he made an amazing film called Angel, which is his most um, subtle film because it's, it's about a... Marlena Dietrich plays a... a um, an aristocratic British, or she's married to an aristocratic British fellow, and she goes to Paris uh, on weekends to moonlight in a brothel, which is kind of astounding for a film made under the code. And it's kind of like Belle de Jour, you know, the Bunuel film. And um, Lubitsch made this film, and he got away with it because he was so sophisticated. Uh, but it didn't do particularly well. So he was trying to do a screwball comedy, which was not really his forte, but that's the kind of film that was being made. And as Andrew Saris said, um, <clears throat> the screwball comedy was known to Hollywood screenwriters as the unfinished fuck film. And <laughs> that's why people in screwball comedies are hitting each other all the time. Men and women are slugging each other and throwing themselves around. It's not my favorite genre. And it's not Lubitsch's forte because he was into urbane comedy where men and women were kind of learning how to deal with each other. But um, he made Bluebeard's Eighth Wife with Brackett and Wilder. And it's not uh, not a good film. It's not a good Lubitsch film. Brackett did, saw it about a year later and thought it was really terrible. Um, but it led to Ninochka, which was a great film, 1939. Everything worked in that film. Lubitsch went to MGM and he worked with Brackett and Wilder and Charles, um, uh, Walter Reich, who was another German writer who Wilder had worked with in Germany. And they wrote a really great screenplay and Wilder became a, a very important writer because of that. And uh, <clears throat> he and Brackett were getting some of the best assignments. And very soon after that, Wilder convinced Paramount to let him have a shot at directing. Preston Sturgis had sort of pioneered this. Uh, the, being a writer or director was not a common thing back then, but Sturgis and then John Houston and then Orson Welles kind of made that possible. And so Billy Wilder got a shot and he made the major and the minor, which, uh, he said he thought, well, I'm going to make a very commercial film because if I, they expect me to make some kind of art film and flop and then I'll go back to being a writer. But he made something very commercial. But it's actually a very subversive film because it's it's a film about pedophilia, of all things. It's Ray Milan plays a um, 
and nearsighted um, army guy. Actually, he's he's an instructor at a military school in Wisconsin, and he's on a train. Ginger Rogers is masquerading as a twelve-year-old girl to escape mashers in New York, and she hides out in his train compartment, and he he develops a kind of a an affection for her without realizing she's 12. I mean, the, the gag in the film is everybody who sees this film realizes, you know, that she's not, she's not a 12 year old kid, but the people in the film don't realize it. And, um, he plays Wilder plays all kinds of riffs on um, people's, uh, inability to see what's right in front of their own eyes. It's, it's a very daring film. It's, as he said, it's Lolita way out of his time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, also, I mean, I just want to say, uh, uh, um, we would say in Italian, precisare, uh, make a make a point about um, Bluebeard's wife. Um, you said it's not a good Lubitsch film, which I think I should warn uh, anyone who hasn't seen it, which means it's a good film. It's just not a good Lubitsch yeah, film, yeah. you know. Well, it's it's yeah. still, I, I would argue, it's still a very good film. It's just no, compared to his very high standard, it's not one of his best. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I see your point. I mean, the weak Lubitsch is, uh, you know, much better than everybody else's good film. Uh, I, I just find, uh, I mean, if you see the trailer for that, if people want to look online and see the trailer, it's really outrageous because Paramount sold it as. Gary Cooper and Claudia Colbert whacking each other around, and and it's a very unpleasant trailer. And um, Paramount says in the trailer, "Here's the Lubitsch touch," and Gary Cooper is bopping Claudia Colbert, and she's hitting him, and that's not really the Lubitsch touch. I mean, he's urbane and sophisticated, but Paramount was getting tired of Lubitsch at this point. They thought he was over the hill, mm. and so they were kind of trashing the Lubitsch touch in their trailer, but. If you if you like that kind of raucous romantic comedy, it's it's got its moments. It it ends in, in a very kind of dark, funny way. I mean, parts of it are very dark in a sense. But, yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah, I I remember enjoying it. And the major and the minor, of course. You know, you're talking about the pedophilia and the Lolita aspect. It's it's right there in the title as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> the yeah, minor, yeah. the uh, you know, a legal definition of a child. Yeah, I mean, it is it is so uh, amazing that the people in the, when he when he takes her to the military school and introduces her, nobody can see through the disguise except for there's a teenage girl Diana Lynn who's just wonderful in the film and she became kind of a up and coming star and never quite made it but she's just great in the film so it takes another teenager to recognize that Ginger Rogers is not a teenage or a, a sub sub teen girl mm. and they become kind of allies wilder is a very good director of women by the way and you know i in my book i was trying to um dispel some myths which i i like to do that when i write film books because there's a lot of mythology and a lot of confusion surrounding great even great filmmakers and um <clears throat> billy wilder the the common misconception and if people don't like billy wilder they don't like him for two reasons one of two reasons one is they think he's too cynical that word keeps appearing mm. and um you know i don't see anything wrong with uh i mean i i once used the word thoughtlessly to wilder yeah when you and, interviewed him yourself 
Yeah, I interviewed him numerous times, and I, he said, but if I'm cynical, what adjective do you have for Peckinpah pictures? Which I thought was a great quote. And I said, immediately, I said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, cynical is just another word for realistic, isn't it? And he said, yeah, you know, every play by Ibsen was cynical, right? Every play by Strindberg was cynical. Um, he said once uh, in another interview that if you don't walk around Hollywood with a big grin on your face all the time, they think you're cynical, you know, like if you're not a moron. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he was, he was a realistic fellow and he had, he lived through hell, you know, and he, he knew what the world was like. And to me, people who complain about that are Pollyannas, frankly. I mean, yeah. I just, I don't understand that at all. So I, I, I try to dispel that. And I think what he really was and his, partner I.L. Diamond, who became his second screenwriting partner later on, um, he said Wilder was a disappointed romantic, which I think hits the nail on the head. And he, he, he compared him to Arthur Schnitzler. And uh, Schnitzler, the writer of Laurent, for example, great mm -hmm. film, or, or great play that became a great Max Ophel's film. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's realistic film about sex and and uh, uh, you know, trading partners and all kinds of things. Andrew, I think it was Andrew Saris who said the only thing the characters have in common in that play is syphilis. You know, <laughs> um, he was Schnitzler also the author was, of a Dream Story as well, Traum. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, he wrote, Eyes Wide Shut was based on. He, right, Traum novella. Mm. Uh, he wrote that wonderful novella. He was very much like Freud, and Freud felt such an affinity with Schnitzler that. He, he he thought I could have written those books myself. Actually, there's a great Billy Wilder story about Schnitzler that supposedly when Wilder was a um, journalist in Vienna, uh, in one day, the story goes, he interviewed Schnitzler, Richard Strauss, Arthur, uh, Richard Adler, and Sigmund Freud in one day. And the, the, But the story ends with he goes into Freud's house, his apartment, and Freud comes out with a little um, napkin around his neck because he's having lunch. And Wilder gives him his card saying he's a journalist. And Freud points to the door and says, Rouse, meaning get out, because <laughs> he didn't like journalists. And uh, I said to Wilder, um, you really interviewed these four guys in one day? And he kind of looked sheepish. He said, well, it's really two days, you know. Mm. Um, but nobody's been able to find that article. And I said to Wilder, what was this? What were you interviewing these guys about? And he said, well, the publication he was writing for, for their Christmas number, I think it was 1925, wanted to interview famous people about Mussolini, who was the hot new thing in Italy. And fascism had just come up. And so Wilder was going around supposedly asking these people about fascism. <laughs> which is an interesting thing, but nobody's been able to find that article. The guys who edited these uh, anthologies of Wilder's work never found it. So it may be an apocryphal story, but it's it's one of the great stories. But the other thing about Wilder, I think he's a disappointed romantic, and I think he's he's actually a very romantic filmmaker in a lot of ways. Um, uh, it, you know, a lot of his films are love stories, and a surprising number of them are kind of semi-musicals. And he, you know, he's he he has a lot of joie de vivre and a lot of romance in his films, but a lot of darkness as well and complications, just like happens to many romances. And um, but he also, uh, in his later work, when when the 
production code was thrown away in the late 60s and you could do almost anything in films wilder didn't just sort of let it all hang out he went the opposite direction and made very romantic films in a period when romance was considered a dirty word i remember that well in america if people wanted to insult you they'd say you're romantic you know mm. which sort of meant you're a sap i guess and um <clears throat> but he made the private life of sherlock holmes which is a great film even though it's been cut severely um still holds up avanti which i think is a wonderful film uh which kind of went nowhere in the united states but it went it was received well in europe and um fedora is a very uh problematic film has a lot of production trouble but it's a very romantic film in, in a lot of ways and so he became he, he was kind of like a latent romantic and he let it all out the other thing that people think is that he was a misogynist and mm -hmm. I don't think he was at all. And actually uh, Molly Haskell, who's a great writer about women in cinema, among other things, uh, just read what she said about my book. She said with his walk on the dark side comedies and refusal to sentimentalize Wilder's reputation has only grown with time. And this magisterial critical study does full justice to his complex talent. McBride draws stunning connections between the life and the art, and his discussion of Wilder's treatment of women is especially fresh and persuasive. Both massive and entertaining, this is a must-read for Wilder fans. So um, her point is that he doesn't sentimentalize women, which is what makes people think he's a misogynist, because in the old Hollywood, they, they tended to sentimentalize women in general, but women were categorized as Madonnas or whores. And so there were women who were condemned for having healthy sexual appetites or, or having some kind of negative personality trait or whatever. But <clears throat> Wilder is not the kind of filmmaker who condemns people. He's he's very tolerant, like Lubitsch. Um, but he has strict standards of his own. But he doesn't sentimentalize women in a kind of goofy way like a lot of the old filmmakers used to have to do um he sees women as flawed and mixtures of good and bad just like guys and uh there are only actually about three women in his entire body of work who are just out and out villainesses and mm -hmm. i would say barbara stanwick obviously in double intimidity is a psychopath and uh uh paula prentice and buddy buddy uh and let's see there's a third one oh um Jan Sterling's character in Ace in the Hole, which is a great mm -hmm. film, but she's mm -hmm. she's very venal, but you understand why she's venal, you know. Um, but the other women in his work, a lot of them, there are many, many what you'd call good women in his films, such as Shirley MacLaine in The Apartment is just a great character. Um, um, I, I, I gave Wilder the Career Achievement Award from the Los Angeles Film Critics Association in 1995, and when we were having lunch before he got the award, I said, what's your, what do you think is your best film? And he said, the apartment. And I said, why do you think so? And he said, well, it's the best mixture of comedy and drama that I ever mm. did. And he said, I was always trying to achieve that. And I thought I did that in that film. And so Shirley MacLaine um, plays a woman who is um, not the kind of person Hollywood would have um, dealt with in the past because she's cheating well, she's having an affair with her um, 
boss, or, or actually Jack Lemmon's boss, Fred McMurray, who's a married man, but uh, she's she's being victimized by this guy who's a heartless cad, and um, you know she's just one of a string of women he's promising to marry when his wife will divorce him, which is the oldest line in the book. But she's a lovable character, and Jack Lemmon loves her, and you know I mean it's very complex tone. But Wilder just loves Shirley MacLaine's character, and but she's a flawed human being, just like all of us, and mm. you know that that's the kind of person he likes to portray. Absolutely, and I mean the, his films seem to me to have uh, very honest conversations with between men and women. You know, I I, I yeah. think of William Holden talking with uh, oh I forget the actress's name now in Sunset Boulevard, not um, uh, glorious ones. No, no, the, oh Nancy Olsen. Nancy yes, Olsen. yeah, they have this really honest conversation about you know um, their 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 parallel careers in Hollywood, basically, and. It, it, it's just a. I never feel when I'm watching a Billy Wilder uh, movie that I'm in any way being talked down to or things are being dumbed down. I always feel yeah. s smart, as smart as the people on screen. And yeah. the people on screen, even if it's Marilyn Monroe in some Like It Hot, are, are smart in terms of that they have sort of self-knowledge and they have yeah. some, you know, they're, they're, there's a smartness to them. I mean, Wilder couldn't, produce a dumb blonde hmm. you know his his yeah. version of a dumb blonde has a level of knowledge which actually puts the men around her a little bit to shame <laughs> yeah she's very very shrewd a survivor very shrewd person like everybody in wilder films and nancy olsen i love that character she plays she's a story editor and some of my favorite people in hollywood were story editors who when i was there as a screenwriter in the 70s and 80s they tended to be bright young women in their late 20s who had gone to some really good school and very sophisticated, but they tended to work for some male jerk producer in those days. And when I met Nancy Olsen... And probably in these days as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I th there are a lot more women producers now. Sure. I mean, there were some back then, but, you know, back then it was worse. But um, uh, when I met Nancy Olsen, it's funny, I said to her, you know, I dated a number of story editors because they reminded me of your character in Sunset Boulevard. And she said, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. So sorry to hear that. And then that was the only chance I had to talk to her. And I, I worried about that for decades. And I, I always wondered what she meant. And I finally, there was a guy who did a podcast with me and he, he did one with Nancy Olson because she published her autobiography recently. She's still with us and still sharp. She's in her nineties and a beautiful woman. Uh, wow. Uh, she got more beautiful as she got older. But anyway, uh, he said to her, why did you say that to Joe McBride? And she said, oh, I always thought um, Betty was an opportunist, ah. the girl in the film, an opportunist. And I guess I can see what she means, because Betty is a story editor, editor, but she wants to be a screenwriter. And so she's latching onto William Holden, who's a, kind of a struggling, failed screenwriter. And she sees his potential that other people don't see. And so they're working on a script together. And if that's opportunism, that's the good form of opportunism, I think. I mean, uh, but she's a very sincere, kind. Um, she's, you know, like a number of the women in Wilder films, uh, she's emotionally honest and direct and intelligent and... Um, She's trying to save this guy from self-destruction. There's a great scene in the film when he's trying to tell her about his 
seeming life and he invites her to the mansion that he shares with Gloria Swanson, the old silent star. And he's trying to tell her that he's a gigolo or kept man. Mm. And she basically says, I'm not hearing any of this. I don't want to hear this. You know, don't tell me. Let's just get out of here. And you want to scream at the screen, get the hell out of here, you know, with that terrific young woman and save your life. But he's trying to be noble and and um, tell her to leave him because he's a bad lot, you know, but mm. I mean, he's wrong. But um, so she's not an opportunist in a bad sense, but I guess everybody in Hollywood is an opportunist in some sense because they're always ambitious, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a feature of just not having much power. If you if you don't have any power, you've got to take your chances where they come. If uh, you know, power can be defined by the uh, the the a certain luxury of not having to take those opportunities. You have a you have a wealth of opportunities to choose from. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask Joe is you you've interviewed uh, Billy on several occasions and you 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 know you're saying earlier on you had having lunch with him as well what what was he what did you what was your relationship like him what what was he like in oh. in, in the flesh so to speak yeah well when I was 26 I interviewed him on the set of the front page uh, hmm. which is a play a play that I love the great Hector MacArthur newspaper play and I I was new to Hollywood and I I'd already been writing about him since 1970. I'd written some articles, reviews of his late films. And so I wanted to meet him. And I went on the set of the front page and got an interview with him. And he, he let me watch the whole filming for a whole day. And I interviewed Lemon and Matthau and the cinematographer and the producer and I.L. Diamond. It was a wonderful day. And uh, <clears throat> Wilder was probably the best interviewee you could possibly imagine. I mean, I'm sure you would you wish you were still around because he was so quotable. I mean, he was an old newspaper guy. I mean, I think my first impression was I'm an old newspaper guy and I get along with old newspaper guys get along. And I mean, I was only 26, but I started when I was 12. Mm. And so I kind of recognized the kindred spirit and I think he felt the same. So we could talk easily, you know, and I asked him about his, I said, does the front page reflect any of your early newspaper experiences? And he says, hardly. It would be very censorable even today, for example. And um, I felt the same way when I met Sam Fuller, who was an old newspaper guy. We hit it off like instantly, you know. So Wilder was just a, a tremendous interviewee. And I uh, published the interview in Sight and Sound and a Boston underground paper. Um, and... Um, uh, so I interviewed Wilder a number of times over the years. I called him occasionally when I was on Variety and I would ask for a quote on something. And sometimes he, once he said, well, I don't have anything to say on that subject. And I said, OK. But the, <laughs> the best interview I did with him, Todd McCarthy and I uh, interviewed him for two days in his office in 1978 about Fedora was had come out in Europe, but it still hadn't come out in America. And it was being delayed and he was in a kind of a dark mood and but we wanted to ask him about his late career because uh, the later work from Sherlock Holmes onward has been really neglected that's another reason I wrote this book and I think it's a great period for Wilder as I mentioned and so Todd Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And I wanted to really get his opinion on uh, his later work and also current films. And, and also to ask him about some riddles about his career, you know, like... Uh, Maurice Zalato, biographer of his, said that the key to Wilder's life was that he was in love with this beautiful girl in Berlin. And and uh, one day, well, actually, I think he said Vienna. And one day he went out into the park and found out she was a hooker. And this changed his whole view of women. Anyway, uh, so I asked Wilder about that, and he said, ah, bullshit, you know, and, and, you know, I said, I wouldn't have gone with a hooker in those days because, you know, you'd get syphilis and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but his, he never quite denied the story, you know, mm. so it may be true. But so it was a great interview, and um, Wilder liked it so much when it came out, he called Todd's phone machine left a message thank you very much so we had a great interview with him and i interviewed him on other occasions too and it was just wonderful to talk to him i was thinking of i, I wanted to do an interview book with him i did hawks on hawks which mm. is howard hawks interview book and when i went to hollywood in 1970 i had already um participated in a discussion with hawks at the chicago film festival and so i looked him up and he was very available because he was not making films and I wanted to learn from him because I was an aspiring screenwriter and Hawks was a great storyteller so I kept recording these interviews with Hawks and then I realized eventually I had enough for a book and I put it together actually after he died so I thought of doing one with Wilder and but for whatever reason I never asked him mm. I think I was kind of reluctant I don't know why um and um in 1995, when I was sitting with him, one of my colleagues said to Wilder, you know, uh, Joe would like to do an interview book with you. And Wilder just kind of looked at me and I didn't say anything. And uh, I didn't realize that Cameron Crowe was doing one at the time. And that's um, why he didn't say anything. You know, Cameron Crowe, the writer, director, did a book on Wilder, which is fairly good. But, you know, I think it could have been a lot better. But, um, you know, I have this theory that life turns out the way it's supposed to. And mm. I guess I was meant to do a critical study of Wilder. It's not a biography. People sometimes call it a biography because it has biographical elements, but mm. um, I don't write biographies anymore because frankly, they're too expensive to write. I, I did mm. three of them. I did Capra, Ford and Spielberg, and those were huge uh, endeavors. And I, <clears throat> I poured my own money into them. And I, I was in dire financial straits each time I did one. So I've been doing 
going back to what I did at the beginning of my career, which is writing critical studies of people. I started by writing critical studies of Wells and John Ford. And the Ford book I did with Michael Wilmington in 1969-71 is coming out again this December, and I've added some new material at the end about various aspects of Ford and a lot of new photographs and things, and I'm going to bring the Wells book back into print when I get a chance. But I've, I've enjoyed um, writing these critical studies of Lubitsch and <clears throat> Wilder and the Coen brothers, you know, because uh, it's it's a it's a fascinating genre, commenting on their work and uh, <clears throat> bringing in biography when it's relevant, you know. Mm. Um, but just going on in, in depth about their work is really fun to do and interesting, I think. Yeah, that's what I've, I mean, I'm finishing my, my first biography at the moment, and I find uh, one of the things I noticed when I got to the end of it it's kind of the opposite of what you're saying in a sense um or the opposite experience is is i got to the end and i re i reread it and i thought oh wait a second i might actually have to say something about the films because you know I, I kind of uh get to the end of every chapter and it's just like and then we're on to another film or then we're doing something else and it's like actually i should stop a minute and just say what i think of the film not not yeah um, um, well, you go into on Malik. I'm sure you go into the genesis of all these films and how he made the films, and and that's all. We don't know much about that because he's been a mysterious figure. So I'm dying to read your book because I'm. I think a lot of people will feel that way that this guy's a mystery man. I interviewed him way back in the early '70s myself, but he, he, he you know, apparently. I mean, you've you've broken a lot of new ground with your book, so it's going to be fascinating. But when I do a, a biography, those three big biographies I've done, I, they're what's called critical biographies because mm. I go into criticism of the films too, you know, and people confuse the word criticism with negativity. I mean, it's just analysis, critical analysis of the films. But I, for example, with John Ford, um, <clears throat> I felt that a biography was needed because Here's this guy who was portrayed himself as an uncouth, semi-literate cowboy, but he was actually a very sophisticated, well-read guy, but he didn't want to admit it. But he made these very beautiful, sensitive, moving, emotional films. And, and you know, the the riddle was, how did this, this character make these beautiful, poetic films? And mm. so I, I wanted to solve that riddle. I felt that was really important because I think, people didn't understand Ford because they didn't see the connection very well. And Ford tried to hide a lot about his life too. And so I, I you know, I dug into that for a long time. It took about 30 years to research that book. Mm. And then Frank Capra's life was completely unknown in a sense, because his autobiography is almost a complete pack of lies. Mm. Mm. So I was inventing the wheel and Capra biography and criticism in a sense because people people had his films very confused because they didn't realize the the importance of his writers who tended to be liberals or even communists and capra was a conservative and people didn't know that you know so mm -hmm. i mean i write these books to correct um myths or misapprehensions or injustices um and with wilder you know i was kind of bothered by the fact that people didn't understand him clearly enough for the reasons I mentioned before. They thought he was cynical or misogynist and they didn't understand his later work. You know, people kind of dismissed his later work. And, you know, I mean, I it's funny, after I wrote the book, but before it came out, I showed Avanti 
to some friends of mine. Mm. And these people were retired university professors, highly intelligent, sophisticated people. And they, they didn't like Avanti because they thought it was anti-Italian because it's it's made on the island of Ischia. And it's a very funny movie. And it's it deals with um, cultural clash between this sort of ugly American character played by Jack Lemmon and these much more laid back, uh, fun-loving, sensual Italian people. And... Uh, it's a very warm, sweet, charming film, but they thought it was anti-Italian because it, it makes a lot of ethnic jokes. And uh, then one of them said, oh, it's also anti-American. And I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> this, this is somebody who is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, which is where I live, calling a movie by Billy Wilder anti-American. Well, actually, it kind of is because he's very critical of the ugly American character but that's one of the great things when you get back to you mentioned a lot of the european filmmakers came over partly because of hitler and um, changed our culture lubitsch came before wilder and wilder with his dark sense of humor said lubitsch was one of the um uh fortunate ones to who uh, was brought over and didn't have to flee in other mm. words wilder wilder had to flee but a lot of great filmmakers came over and changed our country because our films were still kind of puritanical and Victorian. Griffiths still dominated the cinema. Great filmmaker, but very Victorian. Uh, when Lubitsch came over in 1922, he really revolutionized the American cinema. Um, Jean Renoir said Lubitsch in invented Hollywood. Mm. And he, he invented the romantic comedy and the musical, basically. And then Billy Wilder helped... Uh, in the 40s and 50s especially to make us a much more um, sophisticated uh, intelligent country you know as you were saying when you see a wilder film you, you don't feel talked down to you feel talked straight to you know and when you see a film like the apartment it's funny when you some of the reviews of the apartment were kind of shocked Mm. Hollis Alpert wrote this silly review in the Saturday Review saying it was a dirty fairy tale and it was shocking that some a guy would use uh, his apartment to move up in the office by ha letting the executives screw their girlfriends. Well, I mean, yeah, okay, sure. I mean, like he was shocked, shocked. It shows how naive people were. But Wilder at first was offended when it, it was called a dirty fairy tale. And then he thought, yeah, okay, dirty fairy tale is a pretty good expression. So he began using that himself. But, you know, one of the, another reason I wrote this book is I love, love, love Kiss Me Stupid, mm. which is, wonderful movie in 1964 wilder was ahead of his time by three or four years if he had made that in 67 68 69 people wouldn't have been shocked but it's a very raunchy very witty sex comedy it's about sexual hypocrisy in a small town in america and um, it's very true to life and it's very full of double entendres and and uh, but uh, it's it's a very romantic film i said to wilder you know, I think that film is very romantic. And he said, yeah, you know, I, I, I think so too. But he said, I'd like to do it again to show them how romantic it was. But he said, could you imagine if I went in and said, I'd like to do Kiss Me Stupid again? And I said, well, you could call it Kiss Me Again Stupid. I was alluding to a Lubitsch film called Kiss Me Again. And Wilder said, uh, yeah, Kiss Me 
stupid kiss me once and kiss me twice and kiss me once again <laughs> stupid you know <laughs> but it's a great film but he was pilloried he and il diamond his co-writer were pilloried for making this film and it's based on a play by anna bonacci an italian playwright which is considered a classic play in europe and it's when it's done in europe people love it and it made help make jean moreau a star when it was done in france for example and but Americans were so sexually um, repressed and hypocritical in 1964 that they, you know, Wilder said Tommy Thompson in Life magazine wrote that he should be deported for making this film. I looked up the, the article. He didn't actually write that. Mm -hmm. This was Wilder's biggest anxiety that somebody would say he should be deported because, mm -hmm. you know, you think of him as an immigrant, lucky to be in the country. But Thompson wrote this hysterical piece accusing him of kind of warping american culture and lowering all our cultural values you, didn't know? you had that with sunset boulevard as well didn't you with uh, louis v meyer yeah. sort of shouting you know you've come to this country and you've you know you you, you sort of shit in the nest so to speak uh part of my french and uh, you, you know you they should send you back and it, yeah. it was uh he was and according yeah. to uh, uh one of the versions uh, you have in the book he replied go fuck yourself uh, yeah in he said, and I mean, you know, the, the versions we have are just Wilder's versions, but he said, Mayor, who was an immigrant himself, said, you know, you should be sent back to where you came from because you've, uh, you know, um, uh, made this terrible film about our industry and we, we gave you a helping hand, lifted you out of the water and look what you've done to us. And he says, go fuck yourself, Mr. Mayor, you know, which took a lot of guts because Mayor was still a very powerful man at the time. But I, I, I think you're right. The, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, maybe maybe Mayor didn't exactly say that, but that was the implication, perhaps, just like with Tommy Thompson's article, that Wilder took it as his worst fear is that he would somehow be deported, maybe in his nightmares. That's what he would think, you know. And you also have this really interesting point that... Um... He would get very down on uh, his own sort of accent and his own un sort of un imperfect English, shall we say? Uh, whereas there's a sort of David Niven-esque um, urge to take certain of these emigres like Michael Curtis and and sort of you know David Niven, I think, used the title uh, from one of uh, his malapropisms, um, you know, bring on the the empty horses. Uh, with with Wilder, there was a real there's, there's a story you recount of Barbara Streisand sort of uh, taking the, the the Mickey out of his accent and him him being very quiet for the rest of the evening and not and not taking yeah. it all well. Yeah, that's another example of his sensitivity. That mm. you know, people his accent was delightful and charming, but Barbara Streisand, as you say, was imitating his accent at a party and uh, he stopped talking, which was very atypical of him. But he felt terrible about it. And um, he was always sensitive about it. And, and I found an interesting quote from Salka Vertel, who was this uh, screenwriter, um, emigre, who had a famous literary salon in Hollywood in the 30s. And she she wrote in a very subtle way about accents. She said that people like to patronize foreigners in Hollywood for having a charming funny accent you know but there was mm. she felt there was a kind of an edge to it you know kind of a nasty edge to it even if they said oh doesn't he have a wonderful cute charming accent and that's kind of how people viewed billy wilder but i mean he was 
the way he talked was so terrific. Paul Diamond, who is I.L. Diamond's son, was a good source of mine. And he said, um, you know, nobody was as witty or clever than Billy Wilder, but he always felt he needed a, a colleague who didn't have an accent to work with. And his father is diamond as they called him was from romania but he came over when he was nine and when you're nine years old you 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 lose your accent you know just like frank capra mm. lost his italian accent when he came to america but wilder came when he was in his 30s and so he never lost his accent so wilder liked to work with diamond um and paul felt that wilder always had a kind of insecurity about his english even though Nobody was smarter and cleverer than Wilder, uh, but he needed somebody to kind of sort out some of the idioms and the grammar or whatever. At least he felt he did. I mean, I'm sure he could have succeeded on his own. I mean, one of the sad things about Wilder is when Diamond died, Wilder never made another film. Mm. They they made a, a unfortunately bad film called Buddy Buddy, and um, it bombed and. They never got to make another film. Wilder was what I call an internal exile the last 20 or so years of his life. Nobody would let him make a film in America, and he kept wanting to make films. And that's another reason I wrote this book. I was really, really angry about this, and I still am. The idea that Billy Wilder couldn't make a film. I remember in the 70s, I was talking to a producer in the Universal Commissary, and she was going to do a romantic comedy. And she said, I can't can't think of anybody today who can do a romantic comedy. And I said, well, what about Billy Wilder? And she said, Billy Wilder? He's not bankable. And mm -hmm. I thought, this is so outrageous. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. Billy Wilder, not bankable. But that's that was the truth. And uh, it's, it's very sad that this guy was shunned. And um, part of it, though, he didn't have Diamond around anymore. But they did work for a few years after Buddy Buddy on various projects. And I, one of the things I tried to do was to find out what some of these projects were. And I interviewed people who knew him and I got some good stories about some of the films that he wanted to do, which were quite, quite wacky and surreal to some extent. I mean, one of them, the, probably the best one was it was going to be the story of H.B. Uh, Warner, who played Jesus in The King of Kings for Cecil B. DeMille in the 20s, and Warner was an old drunk and whoremonger, <clears throat> and um, they didn't want him getting into a scandal when he was playing Jesus, so he would slip across the border to Tijuana on the weekends and go to brothels and get loaded and, you know, do these things, and so Wilder wanted to make a movie about that, and um, he wanted Walter Matthau to be... Uh, play the publicist on the film who's has the job of trying to control this out of control old guy and i think that would have been a hilarious uh, movie about silent silent hollywood i asked wilder um he, he was very cagey about talking about his his projects because you know people could steal the ideas and he, he said um i said what's that about story about the silent movie story you have and he said well it's really roots it's the story of the mayor family and uh uh he, he um what was the title he had a very funny sexual title that he was going to call it but anyway he was um he, he kind of told me the basic storyline but he didn't go into detail uh and i wish he had made that film yeah um you know Oh, I know what he called it, the Foreskin Saga. 
<laughs> I'm sure I'm sure that wasn't the title, but that's a typical example of his wit off the cuff, you know, the foreskin saga. Instead of the Forsyth saga. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Excellent. Just to, I wanted to tie together as well so some of your interests and a, a sort of recent thing, and it ties to what you're just saying as well, because um, for those last 20 years of his life, he was obviously being hailed as well by people like Spielberg and like um, the new mm. Hollywood directors that sort of would, would sort of pay homage to him. Um, but but not give him any money to make movies or not yeah. agree to be the director and him producer or or what have you. And you in the book, you say that um, one of the reasons Spielberg sort of doesn't want to do the producer-director deal with Schindler's List is that he's going through a period where he's sort of rejecting father figures. Um, and I'm interested in getting your take on Fablemans and how fa in, in the Fablemans he uses his meeting with John Ford as a kind of, you mm. know, the point at which his career really will begin, you know, an mm. end end point and a beginning a point, a beginning point. And I was just wondering, uh, is there a version of the Fablemans that could have had uh, Billy Wilder in, in mm. there? You know, is there? Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, that happened much later, but I see your point. I mean, I made the point, you know, that throughout Spielberg's career until very late, well, I mean, until the 90s. I, I date the turning point around Amistad, which I think is a great film that's been neglected. Mm -hmm. uh, the scene in which John Quincy Adams, who is wonderfully played by Anthony Hopkins, and he was the son of an American president who became president himself, but he was considered very inferior to his father, but he's now regarded more highly. And he, he, he um, defended these Amistad African captives and that, that was kind of forgotten for a long time so he becomes a heroic figure but he he has a scene where he addresses the bust of his father john adams and a picture of george washington and he's talking about um we've we we always kind of tried to deny you i'm, I'm paraphrasing um you know our our father figures who founded our country the founding fathers uh, because we were afraid we wouldn't measure up to you, basically, is what he's saying. But now we, now we realize that who we are is who we were. And mm. th that, to me, is when Spielberg accepts the, the father figure that he had been running away from. And when I did my biography, I found out that Spielberg's father, Arnold, had, had been much more involved in his mo early movie career than Stephen ever mentioned. And um, then I started interviewing all the kids who worked on those amateur films, which is really interesting. And one of them said, I, you know, I've been waiting for 30 years for somebody to ring the doorbell and ask me for an interview. And here you are. So it's a great story that was untold. But they all said Mr. Spielberg was heavily involved in these films. And one of the guys said, I didn't know who was directing, Stephen or Arnold, you know. And um, I also was able to piece together the true story of the divorce, which is the, the foundational trauma of Stephen's life, you know, and he always blamed his father, but really his mother was having an affair with one of their best friends, as the Fablemans shows, but I found this out, and the father later, they did a 60 Minutes interview, the father and mother did an interview together, and Arnold said, you know, I accepted the blame. And uh, Mrs. Spielberg, uh, Leah, said, yeah, and I fell in love with um, his best friend. And it was 
my doing and Arnold said I guess I you know I took the blame because I, I loved her you know and they played it for Stephen and he was kind of stunned but I had sort of pieced the story together I had to be a little careful how I wrote about it but part of my goal in writing that book was to hopefully try to mend that wound in the family and I mm. think I had some um, role in that I think because soon after my book came out they reconciled and it was such a big deal that Life magazine put it on the cover. Stephen and his father have reconciled. And it, I was very happy. And so he said for the last 15 years of his father's life, he, they were close friends. And and it really meant a lot to him. And, and um, so The Fablemans is his way of kind of confronting the truth about all that stuff. And seeing, I, I think it's, I wrote a piece on The Fablemans for Salon. And I, they asked me to compare it with, what really happened it's pretty close to what actually mm. happened but he takes mm. some liberties he and tony kushner his co-writer but um basically um it's a kind of forgiveness of his parents i mean mm. eugene o'neill i always thought it was wonderful comment he said we have to forgive our parents you know yeah. we're all angry at our parents for what they did to us because parents are not perfect people and we all have to kind of forgive them or you can never move on and become an adult. And that's what Stephen has finally, finally done. And I think he started that process in the late 90s with Amistad and being close to Arnold. I had a wonderful interview with Arnold Spielberg, just a wonderful guy. And he mm. was kind of the family historian. He gave me all kinds of priceless family history that nobody else knew. And um, nobody had interviewed him before or since. Mm. That I'm, well, actually, no. I mean, later... People did interview, of course. But before that, he was not being interviewed. Uh, Mrs. Spielberg, Leah, was interviewed a lot because she was a colorful character. Uh, so I, I was able to get... Oh, Stephen, Stephen um, didn't interfere with my book. When people called up to say, should we talk to McBride? They were told I was kosher, which was very nice. <laughs> he wouldn't talk to me himself because he said he's saving it for his autobiography. But I think it's because he's a control freak and I'm a control freak. And, you know, I, I made it clear it's an unauthorized biography, as I always do. Mm -hmm. But um, the only person who didn't talk to me because Stephen told her not to was the mother. Mm -hmm. And I talked to her on the phone and she said, oh, you know, I was told not to talk to you. And I said, who told you? And she said, the gods, the gods. And she was very sweet, very charming. But she said so many things in interviews that I was able to quote her on almost every subject. Yeah. But Arnold, I, uh, I wouldn't have had his side of the story if I hadn't had my personal interview with him. But I think also Saving Private Ryan felt like a very much a rapprochement uh, moment oh, where yeah. he was he was very much and it's kind of interesting because I've been looking at Saving Private Ryan in um, a relationship to the Thin Red Line because they're both coming out in the same year they're both being made at the same time interestingly mm -hmm. like they have cast members who were auditioning for both films and ah. Barry Pepper who turns up in. This, oh, yeah. is, this is an exclusive. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> don't tell anyone this. I'm okay, don't tell anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can actually see him in one of the shots in Thin Red Line. Uh, mm. And he's also in Saving Private Ryan. So he's the one actor who somehow, oh. he doesn't have a, he's not credited. He doesn't have a um, mm. a role, but he actually appears in Thin Red Line. Very briefly. Well, I guess there were people like Adrian Brody had, thought he had a big part. He thought he was a star of the film and then he went to the 
premiere and he was hardly in the film uh, apparently yeah. uh, well that, that's, uh, but, that's one of the myths you remember you were saying about oh, writing that's books that's myth. yeah <laughs> I, I don't it wasn't the i don't think he ever claimed it was a premiere um i think uh i think george clooney gave a a, a version of this which sounds very truthful which was um that he was at a junket after it had shown i i presume maybe even at berlin but it was at some junket and the journalists were, were going so so what are you in the film <laughs> you know, what part do you play yeah, and he's like yeah. but you, haven't you seen the film it's like no you saw it but we you know what are you in the film well you know mm. and he was like oh okay well maybe i'm yeah, not these stories film. are a little more complicated than they get told but yeah, yeah. no um uh, that's true uh that film was Stevens' tribute to his father. I mean, he all through his career, even his amateur films, he was he's obsessed with World War II because his father was in World War II. And I think we're all kind of nostalgic for the period right before we were born. I was born in 47 and I I missed World War II. I guess I'm lucky I missed it, but I, I kind of am fascinated by it because it happened right before I was born, like Stephen. But his dad was in the um in the Burma uh operations and he was a radio operator and he, he and i talked about that and so stephen was always interested in aviation and his father was um uh, did a little flying in the war and he was also uh, uh, working with radios uh, with the airplanes and stuff and uh so that film was very much homage to his father and for example he told his father i'm going to shoot this in black and white because i see world war ii in black and white he said that about Schindler's List. I see the Holocaust in black and white. And mm. his father said, well, I was there and I, I, see, I saw it in color, you know. Mm. So Stephen, Stephen made Saving Private Ryan in color because his father told him to. So that's an example of the father's influence. But I was the, the saddest moment I had when, as a biographer was when Stephen's father said to me, you know, um, you know more about Steve than I do, he said. Mm -hmm. I thought, geez, I mean, wow. I mean, I, I guess I know a lot about him, but I sometimes think, you know, for example, I know a lot about Capra's parents, although I wish I had met them, but I know more about them than I do about my own parents almost, you know, because when, when your parents are alive, you don't always sit and think wish i should interview my father at great length about his life and i sure wish i had mm. because there are a lot of things i didn't ask him about you know he was in world war ii and we couldn't get him to talk about it. guy uh, veterans in the, that period were reticent about talking about it for a variety of reasons and uh, uh steven's father i don't know i guess he was a little reticent about it too but um but steven Stephen just loved his father and, and he, he realized, you know, you are uh, who who made you, your parents, both mm -hmm. your parents, Stephen. Uh, one of the best insights I had, there was a woman in Cincinnati named Millie Teeger, who was an old friend of Leah Adler Spielberg. Uh, I mean, um, Adler was her, her second married name. Um, but she said that when she saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind, she said that's Stephen's mother and father. Uh, the father is the scientific grandeur of the spaceship and everything, and the mother is the music, because mm. his mother was a concert pianist, as you can see in the Fablements, and the father was this uh, computer pioneer who actually had some patents on computers. And so that was a very shrewd comment that when they mm. they communicate with us, the aliens, by playing music with colored lights and all that, that's the mother and father, you know. Well, the combination comes together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, I read a book um, um, 
who was it? Carl Jung wrote a book called Flying Saucers. And I thought, I'm going to read this book. And it was actually very revealing of Steven Spielberg because he said that um, in times of great psychic stress, we, we, um, we think we see UFOs. He, he had psychological explanations for mm -hmm. UFOs. He didn't believe they actually existed. But he said that people wanted gods from the skies. He also said we, we live in an age when people don't believe in God as much as they used to. And so we believe in mechanical gods from the skies. Mm -hmm. But he said when people have great psychic stress in their family life, or in society, they fantasize about UFOs. And Spielberg fantasized about UFOs because he wanted, um, you know, a father figure from the sky, like an E.T. And also, um, that film is about a, Close Encounters is about a broken family. And, uh, and and also, he said at the time it was the UFO Watergate. But Watergate was going on, and um, that that idea kind of took you know fell into the background of the film but you can see in the film that the government is keeping the secret from the public and that's the watergate element so that was a period of great psychic stress for the whole country and mm. so you know mm. carl jung helped me understand steven spielberg you know. <laughs> bless him bless him for helping yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've, we've, I, I, I can't wait to um to have another conversation with you because I feel like every time we talk, there's uh, there are vistas opening up, and I'd love to dedicate um, a, a, co a couple more episodes at least to to, to individual books that you've written. Um, oh yeah, I'd love to. Uh, but uh, to wind our conversation up for today about uh, Mr. Wilder, um, I, what? film do you think because you were in the book you, you you're arguing uh very much that more attention should be paid to some of his later films there are some of his films that have been neglected or were neglected at the time what what film of billy wilders would you sort of suggest for people who maybe know his work glancingly mm -hmm. um to to sort of reacquaint themselves with or to or, or that they may not have seen what 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 would you oh, okay uh, well i mentioned two and they're very different kinds of films but sure. then one of the great things about wilder was that he didn't like he told me he, he said i don't want to keep making the same film over and over he said i love mr hitchcock but you kind of know what hitchcock is going to do and hitchcock felt kind of trapped eventually by being so-called master of suspense wilder made comedies and dramas and comedy dramas and i would say avanti which i adore and i think in some ways maybe that's wilder's best film and and that will surprise people because it's kind of not very well known and didn't get good reviews but it's it's a completely charming film and and very uh poignant and it's about death and it's about love and it's 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 very complex it's about an american abroad and it becomes a better person by going to Europe and, and by meeting a sexually liberated young woman. It's just a, a very rich film and, and beautiful to look at it. It's just a lovely film, um, very romantic. And then the other one is Ace in the Hole, which um, I doubt that many people have seen, but there's a terrific Criterion disc of it. That's a great newspaper film. It's the most corrosive dark film Billy Wilder ever made in a career filled with dark films. I mean, Double Indemnity is pretty darn dark, but... Possibly, possibly, it, possibly Kirk Douglas's best performance as well. Just un yeah. unbelievably powerful. 
Yeah, I wrote a little biography of Kirk Douglas a long time ago, too. And he was a very, very bright fellow. Kazan said that Douglas was the most intelligent actor he ever worked with, which is a great compliment. But he said he was dissatisfied with his career, which is interesting. That shows intelligence. I worked with Douglas briefly on something and really had a good rapport with him. But he's great in this film. He plays this completely ruthless, heartless SOB of a newspaper guy who's trying to get back from uh get back to new york he's been exiled to albuquerque new mexico because he's gets in trouble every time he goes onto a newspaper and he seizes upon a cave-in and there's a man trapped in a cave and he keeps this guy trapped in a cave to build the drama of the story i won't go any further but it's it's a very sharp look at um how how um ruthless newspaper people can be and wilder said he based it partly on his experience with newspaper people back in vienna and berlin you know and um when you look at the newspaper reporters in the front page in chicago in the 20s one reason i like wilder's film on the front page there most people prefer his girl friday but wilder told me he said that's more like leo mccary's the awful truth Mm. than than the front page i like the play the front page and wilder's film is quite close to it but it's quite a harsh portrait of journalists there those guys are really bastards in that film and uh um, tell, tell him his prayer stinks and kick him down the stairs yeah. <laughs> that's one of my yeah. favorite lines ever from yeah. any film yeah yeah wilder Matthau is, is satanic um neil Sinyard and, and another fellow wrote a uh critical study wilder and they said they said it's a version of faust with walter Matthau playing mephistopheles which is really true it's about the battle for the soul of jack lemon's newspaper guy and um boy it's a it's a rough uh portrait of journalism but i mean having been a journalist my whole life uh i i, I can see the truth in all this uh, i wrote a book um uh, that came out in 2021 that I, I was very proud of. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention. It's called Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy. And I've been studying this subject since he was shot. Actually, even before he was shot, I wrote a short story about his assassination in 1961 because I was, I was worried about him. Mm. I, I worked as a volunteer for him in 1960, and I got to meet him up close during the primary campaign. I saw that he didn't have any security, and so I wrote a short story for my freshman high school English class about his assassination. But anyway, the media have been lying to us in America, the mainstream media, about his his death ever since. And it's the alternate media and podcasts and and uh, books and films you know been telling trying to tell the truth but so i wrote a book um really analyzing the failure and the corruption of the, the media especially the new york times and the washington post mm. and uh so but i also analyze films and books and, and all the different media in political truth that's a, it's a book i'm very proud of and so i've been writing i'm a kind of media critic myself mm. and i've mm. taught courses on on media criticism films about media criticism and i always start with ace in the hole and it blows the minds of the students they can't believe that this film was made in hollywood in 1951 it yeah. is such an such an amazingly honest and corrosive film they they just think it's great and you know it has a one of the biggest fans of that film is spike lee he just adores that film and he became a friend of wilder he looked him up because of ace in the hole and they became pals 
hung out together and he just he wanted to remake that film um you know i i normally don't like the idea of remakes of great films but i could see where you could do it differently now in the age of television yeah and that film was made right when tv was getting started and actually the the impetus for it was a little girl fell into a well in los angeles in 1949 i believe it was and um that was which, which woody allen comments on in radio days oh yeah he yeah has, radio has... radio days it's it's anachronistic because that's yeah. the 1930s but you know he he moves it around but her name was kathy fiscus and there was a, a local la tv channel that broadcast this rescue operation live for three days i think it was and she died unfortunately and but it became the first sort of live media tv event of people sort of voyeuristically getting off on tragedy and, mm. and wilder was inspired by that actually one of his fellow writers was inspired by that and brought the story to him and um it's there was a later story um cnn had a whole story about a little girl fell down a well in texas and fortunately was rescued that was a big deal you know the whole country was riveted by that but, but so do you wilder remember, do you remember is... the story of the boy in the balloon as well that where they're actually trying they actually tried to um kind of manufacture that sort of story but of course the the there was no boy in the balloon and it was all a fake it was all set oh, up. i don't i don't remember oh yeah I, I think i'm vaguely remembering that now that's true and, well and... the, the... The, little... the ultimate uh, source of Ace in the Hole was in 1925, a guy named Floyd Collins was trapped in a cave <clears throat> in Kentucky, and a reporter crept into the cave and got interviews with him and won the Pulitzer Prize, and it became a national event. This was in the days of newspapers and radio, and um, there, so it's kind of partly based on the Floyd Collins story, too. Right, um, right. You know, it's – but Wilder – and his fellow writers um, uh, whipped it into a contemporary story in 1951. And yeah, Kirk Douglas is, is really ju just like the most satanic, uh, hard, hard boiled guy, but you can understand him. He's desperate to get back into the big time. And the, uh, his editor is a fascinating character. Porter Hall, character actor, plays an editor with uh, a lot of sense of conscience. He's sort of, you know, Billy Wilder has these figures in his films who are kind of consciences but he he's also his enabler too it's complex mm. you know it's, it's really a fascinating film and it was filmed uh, mostly in new mexico i went to um albuquerque a few years ago to try to see the locations and i realized the only scene taking place in albuquerque was actually shot in los angeles <laughs> <laughs> so i didn't get to see that but they shot a lot of it in uh, out on the highway there was a big mountain nearby oh, there you know right. um but that was one of the, i'd like to go to places where films are shot yeah me but, too uh, me too yeah. it's a, a brilliant it's a brick it's kind of writing books is a brilliant excuse to do that as well to just like oh i need it i need it it's yeah. research and how yeah, much is, yeah. how much it's actually well, research and how much is just me wanting to go places is uh is well, open well, for discussion well i guess you went to texas or terry mallet came from texas so. yeah yeah went to waco yeah. and smithville where they shot tree of life Wow. And, I met uh, Terry Malick's father. He introduced me to his dad when uh, I, I was interviewing Malick and his father happened to come in the office and he's a nice man. You know, here's mm -hmm. my dad, you know. But right. uh, 
Yeah, that's, that's the good. The, the fun part of writing a biography is the research. You know, you get to travel around the country or the world. And, you know, like with uh, Wilder and Lubitsch, I, you know, to see the films, I had to go to uh, Germany and Switzerland. And, you know, when I say had to, I mean, that was the fun part of, to, you know, <laughs> to get to see these films. For example, Wilder's first screenplay credit, Der Tufel's Reporter, which means The Devil's Reporter. I had to go to the German Film Institute in Berlin to see that. And um, a lot of Lubitsch films, I, I, you know, were not existing in America at the time. So I, I went to Germany and Switzerland. And recently I've been doing audio commentaries on Lubitsch silent films are being released by Kino Lerber. And I've done mm. commentaries on films like The Oyster Princess and Meyer from Berlin and uh, The Doll and various other films. But that's part of the fun of it. And then they lock you in a room for several years when you have to write the book. And that's that's not the fun part. <laughs> yeah. As you know, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy. And William S. Burroughs said, if you're not happy sitting in a room on your own for eight hours, don't be a writer. And that's <laughs> Well, that's true. I mean, I, I actually, when you were saying this, I kind of thought, oh, wait a minute, I've been doing this my whole life. And it is the craft, uh, you know, what it comes down to is you have to love the craft. Mm. And I love the craft of writing. And, you know, one thing I've learned over the years, when I first started writing, I kind of knew what I was going to write before I wrote it. But now when I write a book, it's, uh, I don't know what I'm going to write exactly until I write it. Mm -hmm. And I've read other writers say that you never know really what you think until you write it, which is an interesting way to look at it. And that's exciting. That is yeah. a challenge to try to put it down the way, you know, it really, you know, as Hemingway said, uh, not what you're supposed to feel or think, but what you really thought and felt. You know, mm, yeah, absolutely. that's the challenge. So I was being a little glib there about being locked in a room. I don't <laughs> mind being locked in a room. You have to be willing to do that to be a writer, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for talking to me uh, once more, um, Joe. And I really uh, I look forward to future conversations. Sure, John, anytime. It's really a delight talking with you. You have such a wide ranging range of interests and like I do. So we have a good, always have a good talk. It's terrific. Thank you. March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.